Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day you lead your host upon the holy mountains. From the womb of the morning, like the dew, your youth will come to you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs. Over the wide earth, he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let us pray. Oh, Holy Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. The one source of truth and true revelation that we have for our lives. And to know who you are. And to know your son, who you sent into this world to rule and reign over all things, over all your creation, Lord. You have created and ruled and ascended into heaven, and now we have your Holy Spirit, Lord, filling the earth with truth and and life and filling the earth with your very word. We pray, Lord, that your word would fill us deeply today, that we would be filled to overflowing and be your people, overflowing to all the nations, that all the peoples that we meet, we know that your sheep are found in them and that all your sheep are called to you from all the corners of the earth to flow up to your holy mountain. Lord, we pray that you would make this word effectual in our lives this morning unto salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, it's a pleasure to be back with the Lord's saints here feeding upon his word this morning. Uh, My name is Lucas Bombach. Uh, I've already been introduced, but I'd like to uh, cover that again. And I wanted to share uh, with you Psalm 110. Uh, Psalm 110 is uh, from the fifth book of the Psalms. And the fifth book, if you follow the progression of, of the Psalter, is where we learn most about God's greatness and the uh, motivations, uh, the motivating Psalms that we find here, especially culminating in Psalm 150, where we sing, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And it's almost as if we start in the beginning where the kingdom of God in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are not yet realized, but we're being trained through the Psalms until we get to book 5 where the kingdom of God is pictured by David and by the other Psalm writers that God inspired 
pictured as if the kingdom has come and the kingdom is realized. And we sing hallelujah, uh, that we praise God uh, with uh, instruments and uh, lyres and uh, trumpets. And that's what we get in Psalm 150. And that's why one of the reasons we sing and worship in the church on the Lord's Day is because we have this great example, this great expectation that God's kingdom has come, and that's an exciting event. And that's one of the reasons I want to bring you Psalm 110, which is in the fifth book of the Psalms. And uh, we should think of uh, the wonderful message that David has given us here prophetically, in fact. Um, there's some debate over whether this is a psalm uh, to David and whether this is just describing his life uh, or whether this is actually describing somebody greater than David, whether it's describing Jesus Christ himself. And I think it's going to be pretty clear uh, to you that this is not to David, but by David, and that this Holy Spirit was working in him that he would be able to write a very prophetic psalm. So uh, we look at it in uh, three parts. The first three verses, he's really talking about the kingship or the king. And he talks about uh, being seated on a throne. He talks about the, the leading of his holy armies. And these are things that you'd expect of a king. And in verse 4 which is the next uh, major part of this psalm, we see that he doesn't just talk about a king, but he also talks about a priest. And that's very significant and very important. And then in 5, 6, and 7, there is this expansion on verses 1, 2, and 3. And we see the Davidic son, the Messiah, which David is pointing to, as not just a king sitting on a throne, but a king who is actively out bringing peace on earth through judgment of sin and collecting his sheep to himself. So let's look at it together. Uh, let's feed on these truths and look at the very beginning of, of the psalm. The, the title of the sermon is, Thy kingdom come. And uh, we see in this psalm that he says that uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And he's talking about him sitting at the right hand of glory, sitting on his throne as a king. And so when we think of, of God's kingdom coming, we think of Jesus Christ ascending and being glorified. And we, we really have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to sit at the right hand of God? We know that that's something that Jesus does, but what does it mean for ourselves? I think of a, a, a picture of, of myself when I was two years old. Uh, I have a son here today who's also two years old. So I was looking back at a picture saying, does, does my son look like me? And uh, he does, at least a little bit. He looks like his beautiful mother, too. Uh, so we're happy about that. But uh, I was sitting next to my grandfather, and uh, it was my birthday party. And my grandfather was uh, probably near 70 years old at this, at this moment. He didn't have any children until he's in his 50s. 
And the look of joy on my grandfather's face while he was feeding me my birthday cake uh, was really just something. And so uh, I was thinking that this may be a small picture of heaven, that um, the, the beloved son, the beloved grandson, in this sense, is, uh, is the, uh, the joy of the grandfather. And this is something we should understand about sitting at the right hand of God, is that God the Father was overjoyed and pleased to have his only begotten son, the only begotten son that came in the fullness of time, didn't come after Adam sinned right away, but he came thousands of years later. He didn't come after the flood. He came even later. He didn't come after Moses. He came even later in the fullness of time and that God had been planning this and it's a little bit similar to uh, the joy that, that my grandfather had sitting next to and feeding his grandson, the joy that, that the father had uh, with Jesus Christ sitting on his throne in glory, being glorified again. Um, but not just what it was like for God the Father and how what a great joy that must have been, but what it's like for you to sit at the right hand of God. And I bet most of us don't read this passage and think, what is it like for me to sit at the right hand of God? But as a child of Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ and you're united to him in his death and resurrection and his ascension and his glorification, which Romans 8 says that you will be. You'll be justified, sanctified, glorified that this is something that, that you need to think about too, that you are united to Christ in this way. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 54, helps us think about how Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God. Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God and that God, as God-man, he's advanced to the highest favor with God the Father in all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and earth and does gather and defend his church and he subdues their enemies. He furnishes his ministers and people with gifts and graces and makes intercession for them. And... Uh, this is just a beautiful uh, picture of what's happening in Psalm 110. God is glorifying Christ and he's glorifying the church through the ministry of the word, giving his people gifts and graces, just as he gives Christ the ultimate gift, which is kingship over his whole creation. And so we look at... Uh, the beginning of this psalm, and we ask not just what it's like to for Christ and for us to sit at the right hand of glory, a question we should ask ourselves uh, every day. We should think, wow, what a, what a pleasure, what a privilege it is. But uh, also to realize that the king he's describing here is a, a king that was promised. It's the Davidic king uh, that was promised. The when God promised to David in scripture that his lineage would continue on perpetually, but that after David sinned, there was a, a cutting off. There was a, uh, most of David's children died 
and uh, we're, we're, uh, his, he had a little one with uh, Bathsheba that initially died, and his kingdom suffered because of his sin. And so that promise that God would establish a Davidic king was still out there. And Jeremiah picks up on this. Just Jeremiah is a prophet at the time of the, the exile. And he's reflecting on God's promise to David to continue the Davidic line, to provide a Davidic king. And Jeremiah, in chapter 33, verses 14 through 18, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I have spoken in those days. And at that time, I will cause to sprout for David a righteous branch, and he will administer justice and righteousness in the land. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For this is what the Lord has said. David will never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. There's a promise here that David will never lack a man to sit on the throne. And what do we see here in Psalm 110? David's prophetically saying, I believe you, Lord. I believe you, God. In faith, I believe that you're going to provide a savior, a Messiah, who will fulfill your promise. He says not only that, but Jeremiah also picks up on the priestly promise that God's going to give us a priest, which we also see in Psalm 110. And so we see that not only is this a normal king, but this is a shepherd king. Look at verse number two. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your foes. And the mighty scepter, scepter can also uh, be understood as a rod or a staff, which we see in Psalm 23. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. And so when we think of a king, sometimes we think as Americans, you know, maybe that's a dictator. Maybe that's somebody that we don't want here. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, our government is the equivalent of our king. We have to obey its laws and it protects us and defends us and it squashes our enemies. So really there's uh, no functional difference here. We can fully understand uh, what scripture is talking about here. But that this is a holy king. He's coming forth from Zion with a mighty scepter. And he's a shepherding king. He's a shepherd that goes out from Israel, from Zion. And he's not just a god of one little country. Uh, but he's a God who sends his scepter out into all the world together from all the nations, all of his people to his holy mountain. And uh, it says, of course, that he will rule in the midst of his foes. Another uh, remembering of, of Psalm 23, probably, that, that uh, he will prepare a table before me in the midst of my enemies. And that this is what Christ is doing. He is... Uh, communing with the Lord, and we are communing in Christ with the Lord, that we were at a communion table in heaven that's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Well, it's not just a throne, but there's a banquet table, and that he is ruling and we are dining. And uh, if you think that I'm making too much of us being united to Christ and that we are there with Christ, look at verse number three. There's a holy king a shepherd king, he's gathered his people after he went forth from Zion, 
And now we're talking about his people, your people. He's talking about the church here. And it says they will offer themselves freely. There's different translations of this. They all mean essentially the same thing. They mean that the people are giving themselves as a free will offering. That uh, Romans 12 talks about this, that we give our bodies as a uh, living sacrifices. Romans 12 verses 1. I encourage you to commit that to memory, that we as a holy people can now offer ourselves freely. He's regenerated our wills. We don't give ourselves freely in the sense that we have free will to before we are regenerated. But after Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit makes our heart anew and we're new creations, now we can be a pure, holy sacrifice to the Lord. And I think that's helpful to, to us when we think of, you know, how do we do good works in this life? And what does that mean? Are we afraid, like, well, I don't want to earn my salvation through, through my works. But you do want to offer yourself. You want to offer your, your hands and your feet and your thoughts uh, to the Lord as his people. Uh, the, you are not greater than the master if Christ did wonderful works and obeyed the will of the Lord, uh, then we do too, that we offer ourselves freely on the day of the Lord. And it says, on the day you lead your host up the holy mountain, uh, the word for power, some of the translations have on the day of your power, power and army, host, very, uh, it's actually the same word, can be translated power, can be translated army, obviously armies are a physical example of your power. Um, so just trying to help make the connection there for those with different translations, but uh, meaning the same thing, the day of your uh, army, that the Holy Church is God's army, that his priests and ministers and saints are tasked with going out and waging war on the armies of darkness. And that is part of what we do and the rest of verse three uh, talks about the the holy mountains we know that a holy mountain is described numerous times uh, abraham goes up a mountain moses goes up a mountain to commune with the lord so when we hear language of holy mountains um, the the alternate translation is beauty uh, beauties of holiness uh, the word beauty and the word mountain, one's uh, had and one's har. And the D and the R in Hebrew look almost the same. One has a tittle and one doesn't have a tittle. So, um, but the, the uh, idea here is that God's on his holy mountain. Like Psalm 2, his people are streaming up the mountain to Zion. The nations say, let us go up and see. And we're talking about people who are not of Israel. The nations will say, let us go up and see if this can be our God. And that's what's going on here. He's going out. He's collecting his people in order to have a holy army so that he can come. And uh, then we get this beautiful imagery of the morning, like the womb of the morning, the dew of the morning, the youthfulness. And we as believers frequently say to ourselves, you know, your mercies, God, are new every morning. And we think uh, frequently of the morning as a new beginning, a new birth. And that's the same sort of imagery that's being used here. 
whether this is a direct reference to Christ being born in, and becoming incarnate, uh, only God uh, knows that. But I think we can take it that way, that, that um, there was a, a sense in which Christ coming was a new birth uh, and he was a new creation, Scripture says, and that in him we are new creations. And we are lives every day. We, we rely upon God's grace and his mercy every day. It's a fresh stream that we have to drink from continually to be constantly refreshed. And he talks about the dew, which is also a, uh, it says that the manna in the desert was like dew. It came in the morning. And, and this is uh, both language potentially of manna being fed so that in him we are fed. And uh, give us our daily bread takes on a whole new meaning when we think of being fed in Christ, being fed by his grace and being fed by his mercy, that it's our animating Christ, our king, is our animating purpose, that he gives us purpose every morning. And it says, like do your youth will come to you, uh, that we, like Abraham, we have newness of life in him every day, no matter how old we are. I know some uh, older folks, uh, I first came to uh, a Reformed church through the imitation of a wonderful uh, elder lady who is in her 80s, and I think that she sometimes acts younger than I am, just a wonderful lady, full of life, clearly uh, a, a woman of God, and that's the way we should all be. We should all seek to be like our Savior, uh, coming in, in youth and and with fresh perspective on life every day, not not with a, a, a depressed outward mean, which, frankly, I need to work on a lot because I tend to be uh, sometimes a bit of a grump. You can ask my, my children. Um, so uh, the verse number four is really the center piece. It, it's a part of this passage that doesn't fit. It's not talking about a king anymore. Verses one through three and 5, 6, and 7 are talking about the king, the one that's enthroned and the one that's a warrior who's going out and executing justice. So verse number 4 really stands out. And this is how we should understand Hebrew writing, that sometimes the most important parts are the beginning, the end, and the middle. So if you see something in the middle that stands out, in Mark, there's you have these things called Mark and Sandwiches where there's the story starts and then there's like a blip in the middle and then the story finishes, and you're like, what was that all about? There's like two stories there, but this one was interrupted. So if you find something like this, hopefully this is a good way to think about reading your Bible, that, that Hebrews, uh, when they're writing, they use this as sort of a, a, literary, a literary tack to say, look, this is my main point here. This is what I really want you to take away from this. This isn't just any old king. This isn't just a Davidic king who unites north and south, uh, Israel and Judah, and uh, then he, um, he wins some battles and, and slays some giants. No, this is a different kind of king. This is a unique kind of king. And this is, not, this is a king who uh, is a priest. So verse number four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And there's a similarity, which I failed to point out, 
In uh, verse number one, the word says to my Lord, uh, I, may have, I may have said it quickly, but I'll say it again. When he says the word says, it's actually a prophetic pronouncement. So the Lord is prophetically pronouncing to my Lord. Uh, and then about the enthronement of Christ. So this is an intensification. It says the Lord has sworn. So not only is he prophetically pronouncing it, but Yahweh, you'll see the Lord, Yahweh, is making a sworn oath, which seems like a funny thing for God to do. Like if he says something, it is. Let there be light. And there was light. So he doesn't have to swear to make a special point. But he does swear. And that's his way of saying, I am unchangeable. I'm not going to change my mind. And so when he says, and will not change his mind, he's really explaining to you what he means by his swearing. So he makes this sworn oath. And this is uh, also language that you get in Leviticus. You can make a sacrifice uh, which solidifies your oath. And um, this is partially covenant language as well. When God makes a covenant, he makes a sacrifice. You cut a covenant, you sacrifice an animal, and that solidifies your covenant. So really God is, is using covenant language here to say, this is a big deal. Like, I'm not kidding around about this, and I will not change my mind, and this will come to pass. This is not a, a promise I'm going to make, and then, you know, if Aaron and his sons... Uh, sin and and make a mistake or or the Levitical priesthood falls out of disorder because the temple is destroyed he says that doesn't matter I'm gonna make sure that you have a priest forever and don't worry even if the temple falls which Christ very well knew that it would he said that the these stones will be torn down in Mark 13, uh, but I will raise up a new temple for you. And he was talking about himself. So you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is the promise. And this is going back to Jeremiah 33. Remember I said that he promised, Jeremiah was looking for the promise. He says, we're in exile, we're in Babylon, we're in a bad way, but we have hope. We will have a king again. And we will have not just a king, but we will have a priest again. And it is not just the Aaronic priesthood. It is a better priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. If you go and you read uh, Hebrews again, keep this in mind. Hebrews is specifically focusing on this promise. That God will provide a priest. And when we come here every Sunday... We don't call the man of the pulpit a priest, but we call the man who is the head of the church, Jesus Christ, our priest. And the minister of the word is giving you that ministry that is coming from Christ and is continual. And even if you have a man in the pulpit who, who disappoints you and falls into sin like the Aaronic priesthood did at various times, that you're not looking to the man in the pulpit. You're looking to the man who authorizes the delivery of the word. You're receiving the word, not Lucas's word. You're receiving the word of Jesus Christ. 
and I am just a conduit, and your pastor is just a conduit for those words. And then we uh, look uh, at other parts of, of Hebrews, and we see exactly this reasoning, that the order of Melchizedek is a priesthood that is unending, and that it is special, and it's unique. And he points this out. He says to, uh, to which of the angels did, did you ever say, Lord, Lord, referring to uh, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, this exact same passage. Um, so we know that, that Jesus is the priest referred to here because Hebrews clearly spells it out for us. In verse number five, we also see uh, a, a greater expansion on who this king is. He's a warrior king. It's the same king we know because he's sitting at the right hand. And this is a, a, a position of honor and power. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. And this makes a clear distinction for us that there are those who uh, are for God, his people, a holy people, and then there's those who hate God and hate Christ and even killed Christ. Christ was killed by kings very happily. Herod the Great went to kill him when he was an infant. And uh, the kings of the day, the high priest of the day, and Herod Antipas and even Pilate, who was a type of a king, he was a representative of the emperor of Rome. He was killed by kings. And so when the disciples read this, they said, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he will come to execute kings. He will come to execute the people who hated him. And this is what converted hearts, thousands of people at Pentecost. Peter cited this text, the, the Lord will say to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. As the rationale, he was telling them, the man you killed and mocked and said, you're not good enough to be our messianic king because you're from Nazareth. You're not good enough because you're not from Bethlehem. Well, he was, but they didn't think he was. Uh, those people were going to come under judgment. And so you had scribes, you had people flocking to the faith by the thousands in Acts 2. He says, after Peter preached that sermon, and this was the powerful passage that he was pointing them to, which they very well knew, that this king was coming to shatter kings and nobody's pride was going to hold him down. Nobody's pride was going to obviate his judgment. Verse number six, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Again, the nations. This is not a sending out from Zion and gathering his people from the nations. His people are gathered. And then the armies of God with Christ will go out and execute judgment. In fact, um, this is uh, one of the things that Jesus Christ is said to do in his exaltation. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Sometimes we just think that Christ's work is done as he sits at the right hand of the Father. But we should not fool ourselves that Christ is coming again and he's filling, he will fill the nations with corpses. 
not randomly because he knows every person, every name that's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. All those who are not are represented here. And this is a terrifying picture. I mean, it's one of the most terrifying pictures. And it should really cause us to think, if we're not in the holy armies of God, behind our leader, who is executing judgment, then we will enter into judgment ourselves. When you are waking every morning, you should pray, Lord, that I would not be of the nations who are judged and filled with corpses, but that I am with your holy people. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth this shattering or scattering. This, in, in here it says shattering or, or, or hitting the heads of the, of the wide earth is um, very reminiscent to some of the language you get at the Tower of Babel where he says he scattered them over the whole earth. Well, this is him going in judgment and shattering all those across the whole earth. Um, another type of judgment. Uh, he will drink from the brook by the way. This last verse gives us, uh, gives us a picture of Christ, the conqueror, who, who, as he's going about his work, that he, like the example of Gideon, is is not to be stopped. He doesn't take a break until it's all it's all done. And for all these purposes, therefore, for all these purposes, God exalted Christ. Philippians 2. He exalts him and lifts up his head and gives him a name above all names, and every uh, knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Philippians 2 is saying, is that they will confess that this is the Lord that the Lord's talking to, Jesus Christ himself. So if you ever tempted to say, well, this was written to David and it was just a praise of David, um, I, would call, I would ask you to think again. Uh, before we leave this passage and we think, this is uh, a lot of judgment and not a lot of comfort here at the end, uh, believe me, um, we do have a lot of comfort. If you look at Romans 8, both 8, 1 says there's now no condemnation in Christ. If you are in Christ, you do not have to worry about the judgment of Christ in this passage. You will be protected. You will be saved as his people. And Romans 8, 34 says exactly the same thing as Romans 8. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. If he's interceding for his people at the right hand of God, you do not have to worry about condemnation. And I think it's important for the saints to both take a spiritual accounting of your lives, but also to realize that Jesus' righteousness is accounted to you. He is the king of righteousness that was promised in Jeremiah. And his righteousness is imputed to all those who call on his name, who call him Lord. And I would encourage you not to be discouraged by passages of judgment, but to take heart in them and to realize that we have an assurance because our God is a great God 
And Jesus Christ is a perfect mediator. He fulfills all these requirements. He is our priest who intercedes for us. That's what a priest is supposed to do. Your pastor is supposed to pray for you throughout the week, every day. And you are in turn supposed to pray for others in the church. And even those who aren't yet part of the church, who can still come to the church, his sheep who are still to be gathered. We, just as Christ is at the right hand of the Father, should pray for them, forgive them, Lord, for they don't know what they do. And we should have that heart when we're out evangelizing. We should think, yes, these are sinners, and so was I, but we can be protected by Christ our King, our mighty King, who will achieve all righteousness. So uh, just uh, a couple closing thoughts about the Lord's Prayer when we pray, Thy kingdom come. Ask yourself, when you pray, thy kingdom come, do you pray for God's enemies to be shattered? Psalm 68 says, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. Do you pray, when you pray, thy kingdom come, do you pray for God to come to convert the nations? Isaiah 64 If only you would rend the heavens and come down so that mountains would quake at your presence to make your name known to your enemies so that the nations will tremble at your presence. Pray for God to come convert the nations. Pray for strength and courage in announcing the kingdom of God. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Do you pray earnestly for Jesus, the king, priest, and bridegroom to come quickly? Do you pray, Revelation 22, surely, I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And do you pray for the glory, honor, and power of the one seated on the throne? Revelation 4 is about the one seated on the throne. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. By your will they exist and came to be. Let us pray for the Lord to come. Oh, holy Lord, we pray that you would rend the heavens open and that you would pour out your grace and mercy on your people, that you would make us white as snow and prepare your bride. Lord, that, that we uh, would be prepared, that we would keep our, our candles lit and keep our light to the world on fire. Lord, we pray that we could be a part of your holy army, ministering the word to our friends and our loved ones. We pray, Lord, that 
that we could be yours. And we pray that the nations would quickly come to you and that you, Lord, would quickly come so that we can bask in praising you and and in your glory and have fullness of your peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.